scripture this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Uh, my name's Brent. I'm one of the members of the team here at Christ City Church. It's my pleasure, my joy to bring you the word of God this morning. Um, and But before we do that, uh, we realize that when we preach and we teach, it's not merely about someone speaking and delivering us information. It's about how God takes that information and applies it to our hearts. So we need to ask for help as we begin. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, yeah, we come, we come to you. We come to you, the, the God who has uh, made us your people, the God who has given us mercy uh, when we were deeply in need of mercy, uh, the God who has brought us into your own family, made us those who share in the inheritance which you have uh, made for Jesus. Uh, God, we come to you expectantly and asking that you would work powerfully now by your Holy Spirit to apply your word into our hearts to change us. To change us to, to love you more for who you are and what you've done, but also to love one another as an expression of who we've been made to be, who we've been redeemed to be in Jesus Christ. God, we just ask for your help here. We, we look to you and we thank you for your love and your grace to us. Amen. So the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and it's, I'm totally killing that pronunciation. Those of you who know French can critique me afterwards. Um, he once wrote this. It's a nice little pithy little phrase. Hell is other people. Hell is other people. It's pretty evocative, isn't it? What a tight phrase. I'm embarrassed to say how much I like this quotation, actually. Just kind of out there in your face, fairly honest. I'm thinking probably he wrote it after losing out on the, the pretty girl in the room to maybe a, a handsomer rival, but probably a more cheerful rival, I'm thinking. Hey? But is there truth in this statement? I mean, sure, it's, it's punchy. Um, it comes from a pretty dark place, maybe, but is there truth to it? Well, I think in our experience as human beings that sometimes we actually feel that this is true. We can feel that this is true. We can feel that hell is other people, when we perceive that other people are obstacles in the way of what we want. The hell is other people when we realize this person next to me is an obstacle and a competitor between me and the thing that I want. Take David Sadu, for example. I don't know if you've been watching the news recently, but he's been known for his time in the CFL. He's a local. He's known for his philanthropy, but recently he's been known for the way that he paid $200,000 to have some other people write the SATs for his children so that his children could get into a good university. I think the hell of other people for Sadhu was other people's smarter children. And it's ironic because he's known for his philanthropy, right? He's known for something that literally means, philanthropy is a word that means lover of men, known as a lover of men, but when the thing that he wants most, 
a good education for his kids, comes into conflict with other people, what's he do? He's willing to cheat, really steal the opportunity from them in order to give it to his own. To self-protect and to take from others, to see them as competition and to give it to himself. It's really an ugly thing to think, isn't it? Hell is other people. It's not a pretty statement. Yet, is it true that even we struggle with it? Don't we struggle with this too? We look deeply in our own hearts. Maybe you felt it even in this community, in this church. Maybe somebody's asked you at some point in your life here, in the life of the body, to do something or to serve them or to help them with something. And their question of you, their, their asking of you, got in the way of what you really wanted. I need to protect my leisure time. I want to protect my finances. I want to protect my energy. And so you didn't respond from love and self-giving. Maybe you responded from a place that was self-protecting, maybe fearful, maybe just selfish and a little bit sinister. I think Sartre describes the way that we feel as human beings shockingly well. And he exposes that we have a problem as human beings, that we're naturally, deeply selfish people. And it's evident all over the world that we live in, isn't it? We see the selfishness in our conflicts, in our wars, in our communities, and even in our personal lives and broken relationships, how selfish we can be. So here's a question. Here's a relevant question. Here's a question we need to, to answer this morning. How can we be freed from that? How can I be set free from my selfishness and self-preference into love and sacrifice? Do I, do I do it by living by certain moral maxims and codes? Can I do it by putting a nice aphorism over my desk every morning and looking at it and, like, and just willing myself to be a better person? There's no hope that way. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. But there is hope for us because the Bible teaches us that we are freed from selfishness toward love, but only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only through the gospel of freedom that we have in Christ as his Holy Spirit comes and changes us from within. So this morning, I'm going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. And again, Paul is going to revisit this discussion of freedom in the gospel that he first talked about in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. But in these verses, when Paul comes back to this discussion of freedom, he's going to zero in on the only way that love really takes root in the lives of sinful people through the gospel. And he shows us this first by discussing, number one, the purpose of our freedom, and number two, the fulfillment of the law. So our outline this morning is just a simple two-pointer showing us the way that, that finally there's a resolution to this problem. Love is put in human hearts, and it happens as we look at the, uh, the, the, the purpose of our freedom and the fulfillment of our law. Just those two points this morning. So let's jump right in. We're going to look at verse 13 to start, so look at it with me. And our first point, the purpose of freedom. And Paul writes, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And Paul starts off here by restating something that we're familiar with at this point in the book of Galatians. That to be a Christian, to be somebody who's been saved by Jesus, is to be somebody who is free. We've been called to freedom. We've been set free. 
Freedom's just this really great big idea in the book of Galatians. It's in the title of our series of the book of Galatians. But we've been saying a few different things about this freedom as we've been preaching on it. And by way of summary right now, I wanted to kind of highlight three of those things to maybe make it a little bit clearer in our minds as we move forward. So what does it mean to be free? Well, number one, we've talked about this again a lot, all these things a lot, I think. But to be free in the gospel is to have freedom from our bondage to sin. It's to have freedom from our bondage to sinful desires that control us and orient us away from God and his good purposes for our lives. But second, to be free in the gospel, this has been a huge part of Paul's argument, is to be free from out from under the burden of the law. And that's this idea that, that because of the gospel, I don't have to worry about earning God's favor anymore. I don't have to worry and strive and work and just seek to somehow cause God to be pleased with me in my life because I know that Jesus has done that for me. That he's borne a punishment that I can't bear and he's earned a righteousness that I could never earn and has received the love and the affection from God that I can't get on my own. And I have it through faith in him. I'm freed from the law. And then three, I think, I think this is the best part of freedom. Best of all, in my understanding, number three, we're freed not just from sin, not just from the law, but we're freed into a relationship with God that we were created for. John Stott says this so well when he talks about this. He says, Christian freedom is an unrestricted liberty of approach to God as his children. Isn't that beautiful? Christian freedom is an unrestricted liberty of approach to God as his children. We're freed from sin, from law, into a relationship with God. We're adopted as God's kids. And just think about adoption with me for a second to try to illustrate this point. Who initiates an adoption? Is it the child or is it the parent? Can you imagine if the child had to kind of construct an, uh, an improvised stage and get out there and start to do a little jig and kind of recite some poetry and share what they knew to try and somehow catch the attention of the adoptive parent. We know that adoptions don't start that way. It's not initiated by the child. It's initiated. That child becomes adopted as the child of the adoptive parent because of the love of the adoptive parent. Because the adoptive parent reaches out and chooses and loves that child and makes them their own. That's what's happened to us in the gospel. We're accepted as God's adopted children because of what he has done. Because of the way that he has chosen us. He's made us his children on the merits of what he provided for us through Jesus. He's done it. And there's radical implications to that. The radical, the radical implications are this. That means that your ongoing obedience, it can't add to what God's done for you in the gospel. And it means that even your disobedience can't take away from what he's done for you now in the gospel. You are secure as a child of God. You are free from the law, free from sin, and you're in a relationship with God that's secure because he has acted to make you his own. So Paul says we're free. We've seen that in verse 1. We've seen that in verse 13 here in our text. But now that we are free, a question comes to mind. All right, I'm free. So can I do anything that I want with my freedom? Whatever I choose? Can I, 
indulge in a little bit of sin over here? I mean, I'm free after all. Can I maybe indulge in a little bit of sin over here? I mean, I'm free. God loves me. It's going to be okay. I think there's an objection when we look at how free we are and how radical our freedom is with God, because sometimes we feel that, that maybe, God, maybe God got a little overzealous in giving us his freedom. Maybe it's too free. Maybe it's a little bit too high octane for us. If we're this free, won't we just be like that overindulged kid who abuses the good gifts of their parents? Isn't that what we'll be like? I think we think this way. I think that even those of us that know the gospel well think this way. Just think about it for a second. If you were discipling someone who had just become a Christian, say from a really rough background, if you were discipling somebody who became a Christian out of a polyamorous relationship and drug-addicted lifestyle, and now they're following Jesus, wouldn't you be a little worried the gospel was too high-octane for them? A little too free for their problems. And wouldn't you maybe think that what I need to do now is start to just, you know, add some little things to the gospel to to make it clear, make it more of like a five-point harness freedom? for this person to keep them safe, you know, and, and then, then they'll be okay. Maybe you'd say things like this. Well, also to be right with God, I mean, you should stop having sex with all those people. You know, to be right with God, you should give up your lifestyle of drugs. You know, to be right with God, you need to get a job. You need to go to church. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray more, etc., etc., etc. But is this way of thinking right? Brothers and sisters, I, mean, I just want to be real clear with you. This way of thinking, no matter how natural it is to us in our hearts, it's wrong. It's deeply wrong. You know why it's wrong? It's wrong because of those little words, to be right with God, you must X. Because to be right with God, we know in the gospel, only one thing needs to happen. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus and what he has done for you that you can't possibly do yourself. And God receives you based on what he's done and what he's done alone. End of story. If you depend in any way on what you have earned, what you can accomplish to have a standing before God, Paul says this to you in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. The gospel sets us radically and truly free as we trust in Jesus alone to do what we cannot do. But here's the question. We haven't really answered the question. Does that mean that obedience to God doesn't matter anymore? Does that mean that disobedience, obedience, whatever, just, you know, one or the other who really cares, it's fine. No, that's not the case at all because Paul stipulates that there are correct uses of our freedom and there are incorrect uses of our freedom. There are things that we can do that are appropriate and in line with our freedom and things that are out of step and out of keeping with the freedom that we've been saved into. So look at the second half of verse 13 to see this. Paul says, only do not use your freedom. Well, there's a prohibition. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So in Greek, when Paul says, don't use your your freedom for, for an opportunity for the flesh, what he's saying is... Uh, that, that word can be translated excuse or pretext. And that idea of flesh is just the idea of, of sinful desires in our lives. So he's saying, don't use the freedom that you have with God to excuse your sin. Don't use it as an excuse to have more sin. 
Don't use it in order to, uh, like I said, to have a pretext for sin. Why? That's the question, isn't it? Is it because of obligation to earn God's favor and experience his grace? Well, no, we've been over that. And no, that's not the reason. No, it's because in the gospel, God has brought us into a radical relationship of love with him. Where he has loved us more deeply than we can ever grow to realize, even as we will grow into eternity and growing and understanding the greatness of his love for us. We'll never sound those depths. And as we see his love for us, the only appropriate response for us is to love him in return. And Jesus said, we know if you love me, you will obey my commandments. As this love then expresses itself in obedience to God. So by way of illustration, I remember in my teen years, at the time of my life when the gospel started to get pressed down by the Holy Spirit deeper and deeper into my life, making me love God. But it was ironic because that was a time in my life when I was growing more and more painfully aware of my sinfulness. I was a typical hormone-raging teenager, and I was losing my battle with lust. I was battling and I was losing So on the one hand, I would just be struck about God's love for me. That despite my sin, he loved me. Despite my failures, he loved me and he accepted me. On the other hand, I would be haunted by passages of of scripture like Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, which say, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. And I'd realize there's more than a hint in my life. But God's loving me anyway. So as I struggled to put my sin to death, I remember desperately wanting righteousness to take root in my life. I desperately wanted my righteous behavior in my life to match my righteous standing that I knew I had by God's grace through the gospel. I wanted it. I was pressing into it. I I sought it out. But here's the thing. I didn't want to live a holy life because of obligation that somehow if I lived a more holy life, that God would be more pleased with me. That wasn't the case at all. I wanted to live for him and grow in righteousness before him because I saw that he loved me anyway in my sin. And I was blown away by it. Humbled by it. Challenged by it. And I think the reason that I grew by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, as the years went by to slowly start to put some sin to death in my life wasn't because of the law. It was because... God's grace and his love and his freedom were at work in my life, producing a love for him as he loved me and I understood his love for me, despite my sin. His love was changing me toward obedience. Tim Keller, he says it so well when he writes, although we cannot accept, sorry, although we cannot gain acceptance by keeping the law, yet once we have been accepted, we shall keep the law out of love. For him who has accepted us and given us his spirit to enable us to keep it. You see that? We shall keep the law out of love for him who has accepted us and has given us his spirit to enable us to keep it. You know, we aren't always perfect, are we? At at never using the freedom that we have as an excuse for sin. Let's be honest. I think even in our lives, certainly in my life, there are moments, there are moments when I'm, 
maybe fighting my sin, but then I, I give in because I know, you know what? God's grace is going to catch me anyway. I've been there. Maybe you've been there too. But Paul's clear. He urges us, we must not do that. We must fight not to use our freedom as an excuse for sin. But not because of obligation to earn God's favor, but because instead of how great his love is for us and how we should love him in return. So our freedom then, it's not to be used as an excuse for sin, but our freedom isn't just a freedom not to. Praise God. It's not just a freedom for no's. It's a freedom for a yes as well, a freedom too. So look at the rest of verse 13. Don't use your freedom as an excuse for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So once you've been freed by God, as we are through the gospel, not because of what we've done, we're free. But the most natural expression of that freedom is to take the love that we have from God and then to express it freely to others. And doesn't that make sense? Think of it, think of it this way for a second. Think of who indwells you. Isn't it the spirit of Jesus who lives inside of you? Isn't it the spirit of the one who's loved you more than you'll ever comprehend? Who's sacrificed more deeply than you'll ever be able to fathom? Who's poured his life out more fully out of love for you than you'll possibly ever, ever be able to understand? That spirit, the spirit of that one is inside of you, breathing life into you. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If that spirit is in you, the spirit of Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you, wouldn't you express your freedom and love as he's loved you? And know this, Christ City, this also means that you've been empowered for it. That you've been equipped for it. That his spirit is present in you to enable you to do this. If the spirit of the one, John says, is love. God is love. If his spirit's in you, how could you express that freedom other than to love as you have been loved? We've been freed. But our freedom is for a purpose. Our freedom is for a purpose. To love as we've been loved. That's what it's for. But maybe you're wondering here, you've got this another objection in your mind. You're thinking, hey, Brent, wait a second. I see what you did. Did Paul just use a little Trojan horse technique to sneak a different kind of slavery into my life? A slavery of loving. He said, I'm free after all. And, and Brent, neither you nor Paul know the people in my life. And let me tell you that loving them does not always feel like freedom. I mean, it feels a lot more like slavery. Well, maybe we should clarify then. Freedom in the sense that Paul is using here, it's not freedom to do whatever you want. It's not. It's not freedom to do anything that you could wish. It's instead freedom and power by the Holy Spirit to do what you were made for. Freedom and power by the Holy Spirit to do what you were made for. Freedom to be truly human. Think about that. Freedom to be truly human. Think about this with me. There's some logic here we can walk through. Okay, God, we know, made us in his image, right? He made us to reflect him, to in certain ways be like him. And God is love. So if God made humanity in his image 
and God is love, that means that for you to be what he made you to be, for you to be human, you must learn to love and be changed to love as he loves. Only the gospel can enable you to do that. Only the gospel and this freedom we're talking about and experience of God's love can produce this in you so that you live your life in accordance with its purpose. I think that's why John could say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, that a test for true Christians is actually the test of love. As he said, we know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He sees the way that the gospel alone can produce its love and this true humanity in you that you were made to be like. He knows that a child born of God is going to live a certain way. So then it, it, can become, it becomes obvious. The persons that love one another have that life in them. The persons that are not loving one another, living in bitterness and hatred, well then, clearly that life's not at work in them. They're not growing to be like God as he made them to be. The gospel is being loved by the one who is love. And in this sense, only the gospel sets you free to be truly human. Only the gospel sets you free to fulfill your purpose, to be all that you were created to be. And you were created to love God and to love your neighbor. So love is the purpose of our freedom here in this text. But if you're wondering, you're thinking, okay, that's, that might be true, but how is a life of love then related to the law? Paul gives us the answer. He answers this for us in verse 14 as he shows us the second point, fulfillment of the law. So look at it with me. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul's very careful here with his language. Do you see that? Because he doesn't say that you will do all of the law when you love your neighbor. He says that you will fulfill the law when you love your neighbor. And that makes sense because I certainly don't express love to you by uh, following some ceremonial uh, thing in the Old Testament, sacrificing animals and getting circumcised to show my love for you. It doesn't work that way. I don't do all those laws to love you. And thank you for not making me do that to love you, by the way. That'd be uncomfortable to say the least. But you do fulfill the law when you love one another. You do fulfill it. When we love one another, clearly we don't observe these sacrifices, but we do fulfill it. We do live out the intent and the purpose and even the ultimate goal of the law, of all the Bible. Why is that? How can I say that? Well, in the Bible, we are pointed forward to from the very beginning, and we're anticipating a time from the very beginning, the very first few pages, when love would take root in human hearts and dispel selfishness and hatred and greed and self-centeredness. So when you open the Bible and you read the story of Cain and Abel, we're anticipating love. When Cain kills his brother, and you can flip a few more pages down and you see Joseph with his brothers and his brothers sell him into slavery. Like, okay, there's a problem here. We're anticipating the solution when love will take root. Or when we go a little further down and we see David and Bathsheba committing adultery, David going out and arranging for Bathsheba's husband to be murdered to cover up the affair. We're anticipating a time when love would take root. When we move forward even from that and we see Judas betraying the Son of God incarnate. We're looking forward to a moment when love would take root in human hearts through the gospel. 
when we be empowered to love one another as God is love. Love doesn't do all the law, but it does fulfill it as it comes to this resolution in the gospel as God makes love take root in human hearts. Just think about it. This makes sense to us on another level, though, because if you love someone, will you murder them? No. Love will fulfill the law in that sense. Will you commit adultery with someone if you love their spouse? No, you won't because you love their spouse. Will you steal from someone if you love them? No. Will you even covet and have deep greed in your heart for what someone else has if you love them? No. If you truly love them, you celebrate those things and the other person has them. Etc. 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 We could go on. Love fulfills the law. Love is the answer to the wrongs of sinful humanity. Love puts wars to rest, ends abuse, eradicates slavery, and abolishes racism. The bitterest parts of human history, they're all resolved through love, all taken away and removed and rendered obsolete by love as it takes root in human hearts. All that scripture pointed to and anticipated, it's fulfilled through the gospel alone, through love, as it's put in our hearts, as we've been brought into a relationship with God of freedom. It fulfills the law. But we could ask then, what is so incredible What is so incredible then about the gospel that it can do this to us? What are the mechanics of it? I mean, certainly we see the gospel frees us to love because we've been loved incredibly. God's spirit's been put within us. That's all true. But can we we work down a little deeper and open the hood of the car and, and take a look at the engine and see the mechanics of what's actually happening in our human hearts that changes us? I think to do that, to explore that, we, you know, we'd be talking a long, long time. But then there's at least one incredible thing that the gospel does to empower us for love. And I think it empowers us for love for this reason. We're going to look at it right now. Because the gospel removes fear. We're empowered to love because the gospel removes fear. And it's not intuitive to us, I don't think, but love and fear are in many ways opposites. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. But where, where fear increases, what's going to happen in your life is that love's going to decrease. You're going to be filled with self-protection, and that self-protection and fear are going to keep you from an expression of selflessness and love. And on the other hand, it's true the other way. Where love increases, your fear is going to diminish. As you're spurred on to press on in love, even at great cost to yourself because of love. Jay Adams said it this way. He said, love is self-giving. Fear is self-protecting. I think fear is the opposite of love because when my hopes and dreams are only as secure as I fight to make them, then other people are obstacles to me. And I can't really serve them in love because to do that might mean that I don't get the thing that I feel I'm uh, responsible to protect in my life. I have to make sure that I'm okay before I can even reach out a finger to help somebody. And I might even see that person as somebody who's a competitor to the thing that I want. So they're my enemy. Maybe I hate them because I'm worried and self-protective to keep myself under control and secure by my own strength. And look at the way that Paul describes this. I think this is what he's getting at when he writes verse 15. He's just talked about the fulfillment of the law, right? In love. Now he's talking about its opposite. And I think what he's given us here is a vivid description of fear and self-protection, leading even to hatred. He says in verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed 
by one another. If love is to be truly human, Paul's giving us here an, an image that's less than human. He's giving us something that's more animal, more brutish. He's giving us a picture, I think, of maybe the, the hyenas that you've watched in National Geographic. I know all of you guys are not, not geo you know, addicts like me, probably. And uh, you should be. It's great. Um, but you, if you think of those images of the hyenas, right? They're around the prey that they've scavenged. And they're biting and they're yelping and they're screeching and they're writhing and they're fighting to get one last bite of flesh. Because they're fearful and competitive that if I don't get that flesh, my neighbor's going to get it. If I don't grab hold of it first, if I don't protect myself and my interest, this animal next to me, it will get it before me. But this animal fear is removed in the gospel because in the gospel, hear this, in the gospel, you have all that you need. I am secure. I am loved. And all I could imagine and more has been given to me by my father. I'm secure. I don't need to fear. My heavenly father cares about my needs. He knows them better than I do. So when an opportunity comes around where my sacrifice means losing something that I want in order to give and to care for somebody else, it's okay. I can let go of that. God's got me. I can serve from a place of security and love for the other person because he's freed me. He's secured me. I have all that I need. If I'm not concerned about me anymore, that frees me from fear. That frees me from fear. Only in the gospel are we made secure in God's love in this way where fear is obliterated. Look at the way that John Stott describes this sort of gospel love. This non-selfish, non-striving, non-self-protecting love. He says, for love is never greedy. It's not grasping. It is always expansive, never possessive. Truly to love somebody is not to possess him for myself, but to serve him for himself. The gospel frees you to do that. There's nothing more fulfilling and human than to love like this. Loving one's neighbor fulfills the law. So uh, as we look at these things, do you see the way that love is a common denominator to both points this morning? The purpose of our freedom? Love. The fulfillment of the law? Love. And then the engine beneath all of that that makes it happen? The gospel. The gospel of freedom and security in Christ. So as we wrap all of this up, I just want to think about our own love for one another here at Christ City for a few minutes. Can we do that? Can we think about this and make it applicable, talk about our own lives? As we start, I just want to say one thing. Look, love, love is deeply intimate, isn't it? You don't really love that well arm's length. It will only ever flourish when we are vulnerable with one another. Do you realize that? You can't give someone a very good hug when you've put on the, the two-inch thick Kevlar jacket, right? And you can't be loved when some, by somebody when every time they get close, you just pull back into your castle, pull up the drawbridge. You can't love that way. Love requires vulnerability. But here's the thing. The gospel makes you secure to be vulnerable. Years ago, when I came home after my first semester of my theological training, um, I built a house with my dad. And on a snowy day, 
that I'll never forget. We're, we're sitting there framing in the cold and the snow. He said something to me. He said, Brant, I want to just tell you how much it means to me that you, that you sacrificed for me, that you loved me and cared for me. And that's not the way you thought the story would go. Usually it's the other way around. You know, the, the, fa- the son says it to the father. And that's certainly true. My dad had sacrificed and loved me. But there's a backstory here. And the backstory is that a few years before that, my dad had been in a really serious accident. I got a phone call. I, I went home and I, I had to drive up to his house. And as I passed the field next to his house, I passed a, a helicopter spooling up. And I, I found out that my dad was in the helicopter. And he's being airlifted out to RCH. And while he was there recovering, I wanted to know how to serve him well. And honestly, it was awkward. I didn't know how to do it. It, it. If you've been in those situations, it's hard. You don't really know how to act sometimes. But luckily, I am married to a nurse. So I got pro tips from my wife on how to care for my dad in this situation. And, and I learned, you know, of course, he's been in an accident. Massages are great. So I got to massage my dad pretty frequently. But another thing was that when you're there and it's been messy and it's hectic and you're moving wards... There's another need. I need to be clean. I got to put my dad in a wheelchair and bring him down the hallway and give him a shower. You know, people joke about being disabled and having to have someone care for them in intimate and vulnerable ways. And often they talk about how, how awful that would be. But when we care for one another intimately, and when we're cared for intimately, it opens us up to be deeply loved and to deeply love in the way that we were created to do. Vulnerability is necessary for love. Jesus said in John 11, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's the thing. If this is going to be true for us here in Vancouver and in Christ City, at Christ City, we have to start by being vulnerable with one another. You got to start there. Otherwise, we're not going to be known for this love. So here's, here's a challenge. If you have a need, please express it. If you have a need, share it. Share it. God wants to love us well through people in this church, but that's going to be hard to do when we don't know how to love one another well. So express it. And here's the thing. Most of us are like me here. Maybe I should just speak for myself, actually. At least I'm like this. I'm pretty dumb. I can be pretty uh, just, you know, in my own little world, dealing with my own little problems, and I just might not see what's going on in your life. So unless you help me help you, I'm not going to be able to love you very well. We've got to be vulnerable and free. And let me be the first to say, too, that I know how hard that is. Because I have the same impulse that you have in your heart, which is that, that impulse to pull up the drawbridge and to not really let anybody in. We've got to let that drawbridge down. We've got to let people in. We need to be vulnerable. But on the other hand, we need to also press in close. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul adds to what he's been saying here about love and fulfilling the law. And he says this. This is a great quote. Bear one, another, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want to get more particular about fulfilling the, law, fulfilling the law. Bear one another's burdens. But in order to bear someone's burdens, you have to know what those burdens are. In order to bear someone's burdens, you have to get close enough to identify them. Because not every burden is a 60-liter backpack on someone that's just shouting at you saying, hey, look, I've got a burden here. A lot of burdens are internal. A lot of burdens are something that feels very embarrassing. Feels shameful even. 
A lot of burdens are, are hidden burdens that are deep within. And you've got to get close in love to that person to know what they are so that you can carry them along with them. Sometimes burdens aren't even easily described or defined or communicated, but they're there. And you know what? They're, in there, they're there in the life of the person who's sitting next to you right here in this room. So here's a question for you. If this is true, if we need to get close to one another in order to love well and bear each other's burdens, how then are you doing pursuing the people in this room? How are you doing pursuing and caring for them and reaching out to know them across the aisle? You know, political expression, but here across the aisle might be true. It might always sit on this side. How do you do reaching across the people on the other side of the room? To reach out, seek them out, and care for them. Do you look beyond your own circle of friends here at Christ City Church? Or do you only reach out to those that you have a certain affinity with? Right? To those that maybe, hey, you know, when we talk, we don't get stalled in an awkward silence. So, you know, I'm just going to stick with this guy. Or do you, do you reach across to the person even that's awkward to talk to in order to know them and to love them? Whether their clothing is different or their interests are different or their age is different, do you reach out, out beyond affinities that you have for a certain type to love them and to know them and to care for them? Guys, Jesus took on human flesh and came from eternity on high, heaven on high, to come into our lives here on earth and suffer and die to love us well. Surely you can love across these, these preferences and these affinities that we have in our lives. You know, in this church, there's a lot of burdens. Some people need help cleaning. Some people need help scrubbing and organizing. Some need just spiritual accountability in their life, somebody to walk with, somebody to ask them some questions, keep them on track, be part of their lives, be present with them. Other people just need people to pray with. Would you pray with me? Would you be in my life? Can we pray together? Do you seek them out? Other people, they might need a friend to love them. And you know something? I think we're very good here at Christ City at welcoming strangers. I'm not so sure we're always, to the same degree, good at seeing the person who's lonely in our community and reaching out to them. Can we do that? Can we love that way? To love, be vulnerable, press in close, get to know each other deeply. You know, I know this is tender this morning. I'm asking a lot of you. But I'm asking you for the sake of Jesus and his gospel being made known in Vancouver to start to deconstruct the carefully built walls in your life to love one another. To be honest about who you are and your failings even and secure in the gospel so that you can be loved and cared for. To take down your walls of preference, your walls of your own structures and what you want so you can remove them and reach out beyond that moat to care for the lives of others as well. We must do this to be known by our love. You know, Jesus talks about love really simply. He says this, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he says in John 15, verse 12, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So how are we doing this morning? Have we loved one another yet in the same way that Jesus has loved us? The answer is no. We can grow. All of us should feel convicted and challenged to grow. We must grow. May God make it so. May he make his love flourish in our midst. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you. And we ask that you would cause your love to flow through us in deep and clear and evident and practical and concrete ways
so that we're known and we're seen in this city as people that have been changed by your gospel. So that we are the evidence that your gospel is power. That your gospel does something incredible and makes human beings truly human. Lord, we ask this in your name for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.